0: Hello and welcome to The Perfect Puzzle. We are studying Holy Week and we have come to Friday, known as Good Friday. Uh, Looks like we're going to have four studies in this one. This is the first one. Uh, Begins in the early hours of Friday of Holy Week. We'll begin with a word of prayer. Lord, I ask you to strengthen us through... Your teaching, Lord, that through your learning, through learning from you, that we might grow in our faith and grow into wisdom, Lord, to apply that faith to our lives. I thank you, Father, that you are our God, and I ask you to guide our learning in this holiest of holy days, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. We're in the early hours of Friday. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he was taken to the Jewish leadership. Jerusalem and its Passover pilgrims are asleep. Jesus is standing trial for his life. You know, his Jewish captors could not have imagined how difficult it was going to be to get Pilate to condemn Jesus to death. You know, the setting is changing dramatically when Jesus, from when Jesus was rested in a garden, he's taken t- taken down to uh, Annas. Uh, you know it's easy to understand why Jesus was brought to Annas initially. Annas is one of the most powerful men in Jerusalem. He's a former high priest. Five of his sons and one son-in-law, Caiaphas, followed him in that position. Now, these guys were appointed by the Romans, but Annas and it, Annas's family was like the mafia of their day. They controlled all the uh, animals and the uh, money changers in the temple, for instance. Now, uh, many believe that Jesus was likely taken to Annas out of deference to his position, and to allow Caiaphas time to gather the ruling council or the Sanhedrin. I kind of think there's another reason for why he was taken to Annas first, and I'm going to tell you about that just a little later. When he stands before Annas, Annas focuses his questioning of Jesus on two topics, Jesus' disciples and Jesus' teaching. So Jesus quickly took the focus off the disciples and commented that his teaching was done in the open and he was struck by one of the attendants who accused him of showing disrespect to Annas. Jesus demanded that proper judicial practice be followed, such as a calling of witnesses. The scene concludes with Annas sending, sending Jesus to Caiaphas in John chapter 18, verse 24. But John doesn't describe the actual encounter between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, but he goes straight to, to talking about Peter's Denials, and then he moves on to Jesus' trial in front of Pilate. Now he's taken from the home of Annas to the home of Caiaphas. Now don't think that was a very long walk because their two homes were side by side, and they shared a common courtyard. So Jesus is now coming; has now come to face face to face with his most hostile adversaries. As the proceeding continued, attempts were made to provide false witnesses against him. You know, Jewish law required that at least two, and preferably three, witnesses had to agree before the death penalty could be imposed. That's uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. One major accusation against Jesus was his alleged threats against the temple. You know, they were misunderstanding something Jesus had said, a few years earlier, when he told them, destroy this temple, we he was talking about his body, and I will raise it up, which is his resurrection, in three days. That's from John chapter 2, verse 19. Now, you need to know that the desecration of holy places was a very serious charge in the ancient world, and especially in Israel. To speak against the temple was the highest sort of sacrilege. And even the Romans recognized the sacredness of temples and the holy places, and they would not destroy the temples which had been made by the native people that they conquered. You know, even the Romans respected the importance of the temple. But then again, these witnesses have utterly misconstrued the words that Jesus spoke about the temple. Now we shouldn't be surprised by their lies. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he, he referred to them as children of the devil, the father of lies. You know, you are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires, is what he told them. He was he goes on to say he was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and father of lies. That's John chapter 8, verse 44. Now, Jesus' refusal to respond to their false accusation frustrated his questioners. Now, his silence is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Now, Jesus' continuous silence Move the proceedings at the climax of the trial when the high priest stood and he said to Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now that's Matthew 26, verses 62 and 63. See, here the high priest is addressing Jesus officially as the minister of Yahweh. And as the minister of Yahweh, he puts him under an oath to give an answer to his question. Now, a reply was legally required. And the law said a man was guilty if he remained silent after being placed under a a high priest's oath. Jesus' response in Mark's gospel is an immediate and unqualified affirmative, "I am." Mark fourteen sixty two. And then, but in Matthew twenty six verse sixty four, he brought together some imagery from Daniel chapter seven and Psalm one ten when he said, "You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven." Now, when the high priest asked Jesus this, now, he probably has in mind that Jesus thinks he's some sort of messianic revolutionary, come from God in some vague sense to liberate Israel from captivity to the Romans. There were a lot of such claimed messiahs both before Jesus and after Jesus. And apparently, this is what the high priest is most worried about because the high priest had not been appointed by the people, he had not been appointed by the king. In fact, there was no king of Israel at this time. The high priest had not been elected by the other priests. See, he had been appointed by the Roman governor, and his predecessor had been appointed by, by the Roman governor. So he, had, Caiaphas had a vested interest in not shaking up the political situation of Roman rule and Roman occupation. He was apparently concerned that Jesus was going to do just that by leading some sort of an insurrection. Now, Jesus' words are a dramatic declaration of coming victory. What happened next was nothing less than an expression of undiluted hatred. The high priest tearing his garment was a sign of contempt, expressing the fact that he regarded Jesus' answer to be blasphemous. Matthew twenty six sixty five. Now, when he tore his robe, it was a direct violation of Leviticus 21.10, where it says, He that is high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. Now, as I, speaking of that clothing, see, the high priest, had a special outfit that he had to wear and I believe the reason Jesus was taken to Annas first as I mentioned earlier is because the garments of the high priest without which he could not officiate they were kept in custody by the Romans so the high priest had to had to request him when he needed them because he needed them to preside over the Sanhedrin or it wouldn't be legal you know so Pilate, I think at this point knows what's going on and I think he knew a whole lot more about what was going on than the Gospels tell us but now we have to ask a question what did Jesus say that caused him to accuse him caused them to accuse him of blasphemy now according to rabbinic writings someone was not technically guilty of blasphemy unless that person pronounced the divine name. Now, there have been various suggestions offered. You know, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Uh, The comment Jesus supposedly made against the temple. Or Jesus' use of the divine name when he replied, I am. Or Jesus' claim to sit at God's right hand. Now, out of all those, the last two seem to be the most likely. Now, we shouldn't think that the Sanhedrin thought Jesus was making some kind of a trinity kind of statement. But we can reasonably assume he was putting himself in a relationship with God that was different from everybody else. Now, Jesus is being accused of committing blasphemy earlier in his ministry when he declared that a healed paralytic sins were forgiven. You know, the mockery and physical abuse against Jesus should jolt us back to the reality of the moment. The sinless Son of God is on trial for His life in front of of people who are committed to killing Him. And then at at break of day, the council reconvened. They wanted to bring their findings, you know, get a, a, a solid case before sending Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Now, Luke focuses his his trial scene on this early morning meeting. Once again, Jesus' question concerning the fact of his Messiahship. His response demonstrates Jesus' courage in the face of intense hatred. The exchange is brief, but it's pretty heated. Jesus said to them, and this is Luke 22, starting at verse 67. He said to them, If I do tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am? You know, Jesus' response appears to be less than a strong affirmation, but it's really not. What he's saying is, yes, I am. You say that I am, and I am. You're accusing me of this, and I'm, yes, I am. You know, we should understand Jesus' reply to have more to do with their inability to grasp the full import of what he was saying. Now, the response by the Sanhedrin is immediate. They, they condemned Jesus to death. They heard all they needed to hear. They had the evidence from their own mouth. But now, they had to convince the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, that Jesus deserved to die. Now, then we're going to move on to Peter's denials. Because they must have made a big impression on the early church. Because, you know, they're mentioned in all four Gospels. After Jesus, no person is mentioned in the Gospels more than Peter. John's Gospel describes Peter's introduction to Jesus by Peter's brother, Andrew. Peter was the spokesperson for the Twelve at Caesarea Philippi, where he confessed Jesus to be the Christ. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, James, and John. In the upper room, Peter declared boldly he would die for Jesus rather than deny him. Now, Luke alone records the reference to Satan demanding permission to sift Peter and the other disciples, like wheat. wheat. Now, Peter's denials depict that sifting. Now, after Jesus' arrest, Peter followed from a distance. Now, as another disciple, was likely John, helped him gain access to the high priest's courtyard. Then a servant girl of the high priest recognized Peter as one of Jesus' disciples. Peter denied understanding or even knowing who she who she was talking about and then a rooster crowed next the girl spoke her accusation to some other people and again Peter denied knowing Jesus now Galileans were easily identified by their dialect and Peter's speech revealed his Galilean origins now the force of Peter's third denial is shocking he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man that you're talking about. And just as he finished speaking, a rooster crowed. And Peter suddenly remembered Jesus' prophecy that he would deny him. Now Luke indicates that Jesus turned and locked eyes with Peter at that exact moment. That's said Luke twenty-two sixty-one. Overwhelmed by shame and guilt, Peter ran into the darkness, crying and weeping. Now back to Judas, his betrayer. Now Matthew alone describes Judas' remorse and suicide. He places it between Jesus' Jewish trial and his Roman trial, though knowing the chronology of this event was certainly is difficult. Yes, placement could be intended by Matthew to to, to draw a, st- a stark contrast between Peter's weeping and Judas's suicide. The question to ask is why was Jesus Judas surprised and filled with remorse at the reality that Jesus was being condemned to death? You know what did he what did he expect the Sanhedrin's going to do? You know they've been wanting to kill Jesus for a long time, but Matthew chose the word metamelomaia which means remorse, to express Judas' feelings. He didn't use the word metanoia, which means repentance. The distinction in words is highly significant because it helps to understand that Judas's remorse was not leading him to seek forgiveness or reconciliation with the other disciples. You know, it's clear that Judas's remorse you know, is really nothing more than he came to his senses having betrayed one who did so much for him. Judas took his own life probably because he was swallowed up in hopelessness. The betrayal of innocent blood was more than he could bear. And the chief priests and elders had no more sympathy for Judas than they had for Jesus. Their only interest in Judas had been to get the information from him they needed to arrest Jesus. Now, they didn't have any further use for him. Judas responded their callousness by throwing. Now, the Greek word there is a very strong term. Uh, you could use it, uh, you know, as uh, throwing a fastball in baseball. That's how hard he threw it. Those thirty pieces of silver he flung them in, into the temple. Matthew then recounts Judas's death in the briefest of terms. Then he went out and hanged himself. Now, then you see the hypocrisy of the chief priests and elders on full display, because they determined they couldn't keep the blood money, which they paid, although they had just condemned an innocent man. After meeting together, they took the money and bought a field for the burial of foreigners, likely Jews from the diaspora who died during a visit to Jerusalem. Now, at the time Matthew wrote his gospel, this plot of land was still referred to as the the field of blood. Now, Matthew understood that these events, the death of Judas, the purchase of the field, field, were fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah. But the major portion of Matthew's text comes from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, With an additional allusion to Jeremiah 19 verses 1 through 13. Now, combining two or more Old Testament you know quotations into one text is not unusual. It's often done in the New Testament. It's often done in the Old Testament. Usually, when the situation happens, only the more prominent prophet is mentioned. Now the passage in Matthew 27 verses 9 to 10 reads, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was priced, Whom certain of the children did price, And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. You know, now Matthew interprets these, these passages topologically. He didn't make up the story based on the Zechariah text, but he read the prophet and he saw the pattern in which an Old Testament person or event anticipated something in Jesus' life and ministry. You know, God's sovereignty guides everything, including these prophetic events. Now, one final issue to consider with the death of Jesus is there's a seemingly contradictory presentation in Acts. It seems to contradict Matthew. Matthew describes Judas' remorse and hanging of, of himself. The book of Acts t- describes Judas falling headlong and his body bursting open. But you know, you get those are complementary retellings of the same event, but each focus on different aspects of Judas' death. Both accounts include Judas' purchase of, of a field with his unrighteous wages and the land known as the Field of Blood. You, know, you can only imagine how the rope Judas used to hang himself or a branch to which the rope was tied. One of the two broke, his body hanging over the edge of a cliff and him falling onto sharp rocks if he'd been dead for some time his body would have been in a process of decomposition and those fluids would have been released when he fell you know then each passage focuses on complementary details from the same event they're not contradictory so don't get that idea as mentioned as i mentioned earlier though this uh, this is this night's the darkest in human history. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. As the events unfold, we see the betrayal of a friend, the leader of the Twelve denying he even knows Jesus. The leaders of the Jewish people are frantically searching for false witnesses to agree on charges that would be worthy of death. And Jesus confessing he's the Son of Man He's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, sometimes the question gets asked, How are Peter's denials different than Judas's betrayal? You know, on the surface they do seem similar, but they're very different. You know, Judas was a complex person. You know, he was a treasure a treasurer for the this apostolic band of, you know, twelve disciples of Jesus so you know he had to have had some positive characteristics that everybody else recognized you know you don't give the role of treasurer keeper of the money it's not given you know you're not going to give it to somebody who's known to be greedy and not responsible you know it's hard to find a single reason for Judas's action but he tells him himself that greed was a significant aspect. You know, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Is the question he asked. What can I get out of this? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. That's Matthew 26, verses 15 and 16. Now, the love of money has contributed to the downfall of more than one person, and Judas appears to have fallen victim to it. Paul gives, Paul gives us a serious warning uh, about anyone whose ambition is, is to get rich. He says, those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmless desires which plunge, plunge people into ruin and, and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, Judas's betrayal also has a cosmic element. Judas was indwelt by Satan. That's John 13, 27. You know, you may be asking how Satan was able to use Judas, Judas that much and eventually indwell him. But as we noted earlier, Judas was a thief. Prolonged, unconfessed, and unrepentant sin seemed to be the ground through which Satan entered him. You now, Judas is a painful reminder of how close a person can be to Jesus. But not experience Jesus' saving grace Now in contrast to Judas's Scheming, Peter's denials were the result of Being being overcome by a momentary fear for his life Now what led to his collapse Was a convergence, convergence of his Overconfidence, he refused to listen to Jesus' warning he was sleeping instead of praying, failing to take his own weaknesses seriously. Now Peter later also is going to become the focus of satanic attention. Now he didn't understand as he warmed himself by the fire in that high priest in the high priest courtyard he was in the process of being sifted. The most important difference between Peter and Judas is while Judas hung himself in remorse, Peter demonstrated repentance by going out to live a life for God's glory and eventually to die a martyr's death. Now, the religious leaders showed no concern for justice, they only wanted to maintain their position of power. You know, their eyes are blinded, they perceive Jesus to be their enemy. When in fact, Jesus was their God. The Sanhedrin demonstrated a cynical, politically savvy, self serving disposition. They compromised their moral integrity to retain positions of power. You know, whenever someone becomes more concerned with the perks of leadership than their spiritual responsibilities of it, he or she falls prey to the sin of the Sanhedrin. And leadership gone awry is an ugly thing. There comes a point when a person can become blinded to his or her own selfish desires for power. You know, Jesus was correct when he described the scribes and Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. What made the situation even more tragic was they knew the scriptures better than anyone in the world. Hey, this is a strong reminder. And hey, listen closely to what I'm about to say. We are not what we know, but what we do with that knowledge. That is what we are. You know, I pray that God gives church leaders. Don't demonstrate an insatiable hunger for power But that he would give us church leaders Who want to wash feet Now we've seen Caiaphas brought the proceedings To a climatic moment He pressed the question on Jesus Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Mark fourteen sixty one. If there were any doubts about who Jesus be- believed himself to be They are erased at that very moment. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus made absolutely clear he's going to come again one day. He acknowledged his return to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And now he's doing so to to people who hated him and wanted him executed. Now, Jesus' second coming as the Son of Man should be a strong encouragement to those of us who are suffering for our faith. You know, there's a better world coming when Jesus returns to reward His people and judge His enemies. Now, and we're going to pick this up again in our next session. I hope and pray you've learned something. Father, we ask you to be with us as we go forth in our lives. I ask you, Lord, that our your Holy Spirit would be with us in teaching us and guiding us. In Jesus' name, amen.